You're listening to Hallway Talks with Louisa and Ria. After a brief hiatus, your favorite dynamic duo is back with another equally dynamic duo, Wagner alums Vittoria Zanuso and Samar Saliba, who are currently working to enable cities to meet the demands of incoming migrant and refugee populations at the Mayor's Migration Council. The MMC, where Vittoria serves as executive director and Summer as head of practice, believes that local city governments need to be equipped with access, capacity and knowledge to deal with the real shifts in migration patterns that we see, whether induced by climate, conflict or economic factors. So we're going to hear all about their extremely innovative approaches to empowering city leaders, engaging in migration diplomacy, and how Wagner was a crucial influencer in their careers. So sit back, grab some coffee, and enjoy the conversation. Recorded April 16th, 2021. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. We are always so excited to learn more about what fellow Wagnards are doing post-graduation and their careers. So if we can start this interview by having you explaining a little more what's the Mayor's Migration Council doing, what's your work there, and how are you engaging with different mayors to advance the migration issues around the world? Thank you so much for, for having us uh, here today. Um, it's very interesting that you're still using the word Wagnerds. I, <laughs> that, that, that still leaves, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know when I graduated, probably six years ago. And yeah, as, as one of the few foreign students there, I, 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 rem- I remember it took me a while to understand what that meant. Um, <laughs> um, maybe I, I'll kick it off and, and, and tell you a bit more about the MMC high level, but then uh, my colleague and partner in crime Samir uh, will we'll add some color to that. The Mayor's Migration Council is a mayor-led initiative or, and organization that um, was created uh, in 2018 uh, at the margins of the Conference for the Adoption of the Global Compact on Migration, which is basically the Paris Agreement of Migration, is, is, the, is the highest uh, norm-setting uh, document that, that exists out there globally. And so at the margins of this conference, a group of mayors that range from uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, the mayor of Milan, the mayor of Freetown, the mayor of Sao Paulo, they came together and they, uh, and they decided to, to really uh, participate in that process. And, and, and because mayors are really at the front line of the issue uh, and the challenges and the opportunities of migration, and they felt they needed to have a voice in, this big, in the negotiations of this big uh, agreement. So at that time, they uh, participated in a, in a mayoral forum at the margins of the event, and they uh, called for the launch of this organization, an organization that was not meant to be a network of cities because there's plenty of, out there and they're doing great, amazing work, but more of um, an influence arm, something that was very nimble, something that was very um, uh, proactive in elevating the voice of mayors at the national international level. So we, we were kind of born as a diplomatic unit in a way, uh, really focusing uh, on that level. But then when I came on board uh, about a year ago as the inaugural executive director, when it was the time to turn this initiative into an actual organization, uh, I, I, I really felt strongly that it was important to add an element that was more focused on practice 
and, and technical assistance and financing because it's very important for cities to be heard globally, but they also need to bring home resources to make sure that they, they, they then serve their migrant and refugee communities. I really enjoy hearing you talking about how you are, you are capacitating mayors to be the ones taking the lead on migration issues or at least making them more of a central part of the conversation. What do you think, in which ways do you think the local governments are more capable and more able to address these migration issues than maybe national or even international organizations? While it's very much like a priority and a prerogative of states to deal with immigration policies, so who gets into the country and like what are the rules that govern that, at the end of the day, when people move to countries, they, uh, they, they tend to end in cities. And, uh, and mayors are there taking care of them in terms of housing, uh, schooling, uh, uh, social, social inclusion. And, and they, they do that regardless of where, why, you're, you know, why you're a migrant, why are you moving, where are you coming from? Uh, and, and they don't really care about labels, whether you're a, an asylum, asylum seeker, a refugee, a climate migrant. And so it's, it's very important that they are included in regulations and, and, and policy and fiscal decisions that actually have an impact on their ability to deliver on the ground. Um, Simon, I don't know if you would like to add anything to, to what I just said. No, I, I think that's perfect. I mean, well, my, well, national governments are sort of thinking about borders and thinking about geopolitics and thinking about you know, countrywide issues. Cities are really just there to help everybody within the city. Um, and because of that, they're, they're closer to, to sort of the day-to-day -day issues, what I, what I like to call the ecosystem of needs that migrants, refugees, and internally displaced face every day. Um, and they understand not to sort of address it in a silo or come up with a whole separate policy for them, but really think about, okay, I have this school system, I have this housing system, I have this employment program, how can I make them more inclusive of newcomers who are coming to my city? Uh, and we've seen that from cities like Paris to Athens to Kampala to cities here in the U.S. Uh, really, cities you know stepping up and taking the lead to to include newcomers, let's say, into their into their communities. One key difference between uh, mayoral or like city level ser service provision compared to uh, big multilaterals like the UN Refugee Agency or the UN Migration Agency is that mayors think about residents as residents. And so they try to maximize their resources by looking at the overlapping needs. For example, there might be overlapping needs between the homeless community, the elderly, uh, the, the, and other vulnerable groups. And so for mayors, it actually makes sense to, to, to be uh, inclusive of different, of, of different groups. Uh, and these are really helps uh, avoid um, creating competition over scarce resources and, and, and distinction that sometimes is just it's just really not, not necessary. While at the, on the other end, these international organizations, they really like labels because that's how they operate. And so you will see uh, an agency saying, I cannot you know, provide this service to someone that is not a refugee. And that doesn't work on the ground. Yeah, I would like to maybe dive a little more into how it works on the ground in different cities, because y'all have now mentioned Sao Paulo, Kampala, Milan, Paris, these all are very different policy environments and different capacities on a local city level. So could you walk us through some of those differences? Yeah, I, I can start with that one. I think, um, I mean, what, while I was at the International Rescue Committee, we launched a report uh, with Vittoria when she was at 100 Resilient Cities, just looking at urban displacement in 23 cities around the world. 
And what we found was that the cities who are hosting the most displaced in that case are doing so with the fewest resources. So I think resources, just the difference of resources is, is really a, something to highlight. I, I'm not, I'm not gonna say that uh, there's no need within Paris or there's no need within LA. There certainly is need for more technical resources, more financial support, more political and policy support within those cities. Um, but while LA has you know, a couple of thousand uh, or less than 10,000 refugees within that city, Kampala has 100,000. Um, and they're already dealing with unplanned urbanization, the prevalence of low-income informal neighborhoods, um, scarcity of, of public services, um, things like that. And so, you know, the scale of the need certainly changes when you're moving from a city like Los Angeles to Kampala, or even from Kampala to Arua, a smaller city within Uganda, uh, on the border of, of, of um, countries such as the Congo or, or Kenya, and therefore, you know, just really, really stretched in terms of uh, meeting the needs of, of displaced within these cities. And so, you know, the context of need is different, but the willingness for city leaders to step up and, and to find solutions is the same. Um, whereas in Los Angeles, that may mean, you know, added support to add languages within the school system. In Kampala, that may mean whole new water mains for a neighborhood that's doubled in population um, over the past five years due to displacement. Um, and that's, you know, sort of the challenge uh, and opportunity of the Mayor's Migration Council is that we're trying to resource Los Angeles just as equally as we're trying to resource Kampala. Samar, like you mentioned, before joining MMC, you were part of the International Rescue Committee. Can you speak a little about the difference of approaches that you see in a civil society organization like the IRC compared to MMC or even more specifically local governments when dealing with migration issues? Yeah, well, I, I was the uh, leader of an advisor at the International Aggressive Committee for six years before um, joining Vittoria on this uh, amazing adventure at the Mayor's Migration Council. And I, part of the reason why I made that decision to, to leave the International Rescue Committee was I wanted to sort of move away from the international humanitarian mindset um, that you know we we need to be here within this city. We need to be addressing displacement. I think the main difference to answer your question between local governments, city governments, and civil society, especially international civil society, is that cities have the mandate to be there. City governments have the mandate to be within the cities that they're governing, whereas especially international NGOs don't always have the mandate to be there. That's not to say that they're not important. I mean, the role of civil society is to hold city governments and national governments to account, to fulfill their mandates, and to also fill the gaps that exist when those mandates aren't being fulfilled. And so if any, any government is sort of not meeting the needs of refugees, that's when you need an organization like the International Rescue Committee or local refugee-led organizations within these cities to really advocate for the needs of refugees. But it's a complementary uh, role that I think civil society plays um, in comparison to city governments, right? Like city governments help everybody. That's their mandate to help all residents within the city. Um, and the role of civil society is to help them do that because sometimes it's too tall of a task to really make sure that the specific needs of refugees, the specific needs of, the, of people living with disabilities, the specific needs of women are being met in, in an equal way. Uh, and so it's really a complementary role that I see uh, civil society and, and 
local governments playing. Yeah, I, I like how you talk about these specific needs, which only possibly a local city government or a mayor's council would actually understand on the ground. And how do we then take that knowledge, that tacit knowledge to global deliberations? Uh, Victoria, I know that you're working on creating these kind of global dialogues where cities are involved in those deliberations. And I'm curious to know what the power dynamics would be in those situations. Do cities in the global north have more power? Do cities have less power than maybe more global stakeholders? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Uh, in fact, uh, a big part of my role is to ensure that what we're learning on, on the ground uh, is actually trickling up. And to do that, uh, I also work with uh, the uh, summer's uh, counterpart with um, Maggie Powers and is our head of policy and advocacy. So it's almost like uh, they are the two, uh, the two faces of the same coin in, in a way. Um, so that, that those processes can be very uh, complex and you need to really understand how they work in order to actually influence them. Um, we deal with different kinds of processes, but the, one, the ones that we're more, most active are, are the ones that are UN led. Uh, and global. And so for those processes that are mainly linked to the global compact on migration and the global compact uh, for refugees, um, uh, there's a lot of, there are different components. There's um, um, what we call shuttle diplomacy or, you know, background, uh, background negotiations where we, uh, we really facilitate uh, connections uh, between states, multilaterals and cities because cities are, are, are very often excluded from those conversations uh, as they, you know, their inclusion kind of challenges the idea that states are sovereign. And so it's always mm, quite uh, complex. Um, we, we do that because we wanna speak, we, we wanna engage uh, what we call friendly states or the community of the willing to start accepting the idea that mayors and local leaders can be actually an addition, a complementary power to what they're doing. And so some of them have been convinced to, to bring cities and, and, and mayors into their delegations, for example. Uh, some of them have been consulting them prior showing up in this, uh, in, in, in this fora. In other cases, we managed to negotiate a mayoral speaker uh, at a panel that was uh, mostly with state audiences. So it, it kind of depends. There are different tactics that we're using and definitely, definitely there are power dynamics involved. So it's very, uh, it's very, um, it happens very often that uh, instead of inviting a mayor, they actually prefer to invite the MMC or a representative of cities, because that way you are more of a seen as a neutral party and not a specific government official. That is something that I definitely wanna change. So every time I go on stage, I always say, okay, next year or in two years, I don't want to see myself on this stage. Um, there are definitely power dynamics because there are uh, bigger cities that are better resourced and they have larger offices. They sometimes have a person that is dedicated to international activities. And so they obviously like have more resources to participate uh, actively and in, uh, in these processes and, and really influence them. So we, we spend some of our resources and some of our, our extra love uh, for those smaller cities that uh, might be less networked or used to this kind of engagements to make sure that they, their voices are heard. Because it's true that uh, a lot of migrants end up in Paris, in London, in Milan, but most of them, they actually uh, move within boundaries and they move 
uh, you know, within Africa and Asia and, 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 and between cities that are very small and secondary. And we really want those experiences to, to transpire. Closing on the power dynamics, there's the power dynamic of, of bringing cities, which are a, a young dis disruptive voice in that very old um, system. Uh, but it's also that those voices are often brought by me, which uh, who I'm a, a very unusual leader in that space. Uh, that space is dominated by white males and older people with a different um, way of looking at this, um, <laughs> this space. And so we, we are really disruptive at times uh, in both senses. I really love what you said here because it's, it's a perfect segue for my next question, which I was going to ask you about more generically, what are the biggest challenges that you see in migration right now and how do you think that COVID has exacerbated it and how do you see all this playing out in the next few years? But um, I would also like to add, what do you see that it's the biggest challenge to your work right now because of the dis disruptive na nature of both your organization, or as you said, even you as a leader, Vittoria, and you as someone in the diplomatic space. On, on the first question, I think that COVID really disrupted our work in different ways. Uh, first, uh, try to do diplomacy virtually where everyone is looking at you and you cannot really do you know, that shuttle diplomacy that I was talking about later. That's very different. And so we, we really had to start using different tactics that were more about communications campaigns and visuals, like trying to maybe mm, bring on change and, and, and shift behaviors by, by, by through pressure, through external pressure rather than internal negotiations. Um, but COVID really disrupted the field of uh, inclusion because the whole secret of including migrants and refugees and, and really uh, showing uh, receiving communities that there's nothing to fear about is really to have them work and be together. And so how do you do that in a moment where COVID is really forcing us to be apart? How do you, yeah, how do you dispel rumors and misinformation when no one is really interacting in real life and they, they, they all access the internet and all of this you know, biased information flows? The biggest trend for, for the future, in my opinion, is climate-induced uh, migration and mobility, which is something that is gonna happen no matter what. And so as people move within their boundaries or internationally due to climate pressures and end up in cities, how do we deal with that? And how do we deal with that in a context where we are still um, in lockdown in most cases? How do you shelter people that need to move for natural disasters if you cannot you know, host a lot of like big numbers of people in, in the same space? I, yeah, just to pick up on the on the first point that Tori mentioned, she's gotten very good at Twitter diplomacy, <laughs> which is a even more. It was always important, but it's especially important now um, in COVID nineteen. Um, and just on the on the complexity or sort of the the biggest challenge of migration today, I think, um, you know, it's the, the complexity of it to me is is something that we don't pay enough attention to. I mean, Tori mentioned climate um, and climate is gonna be the biggest driver of climate over the next few decades, but it's not the only one. And to sort of, sort of, to sort of simplify why people move down to one factor, A, I think does a disservice to their very serious, very personal decision to move, which yes, may be uh, tied to climate, 
It may be tied to conflict. It may be tied to economic reasons. It may not be tied to any of those things. But when you look at sort of the trends of specific parts of the world, such as in the Horn of Africa or Somalia, you're just as likely to be displaced due to climate change and loss of livelihoods uh, as you are due to conflict. And once you are displaced, the chances are you're gonna to move to a city like Hargesa or Mogadishu in order to find opportunity. But that's just the rub is that you're looking for opportunity, but you may not always find it, right? And that's, that's the other side of the challenge, which is not only drivers, but making sure that once they come to a city that we're meeting their expectations of opportunity. Um, because right now that's not happening. Um, a lot of times they leave due to one climate risk only to find another climate risk because they live in a high flood zone or um, in an area where, you know, in, for rural migrants in Freetown, they're living on hillsides that are prone to mudslides during the rainy season, things like that. Um, so they left because of climate, but now they're facing climate changes that may be even more severe than those from where they left. And it's this complexity uh, of issues, pull and push factors, drivers, um, reasons for moving that are really, really sort of muddying the waters of, of how we approach migration and displacement in, in today's day and age. To answer the second question that was more about leadership and how do you lead, how, how can you be an adaptive leader uh, in a context where you need to disrupt and change behaviors, but you also don't want to alienate yourself because you don't want to be too critical or disruptive or, or because th then they will start excluding you, right? And, and, and that's very important. That's something that I really learned firsthand that it's important to be, to have a fresh voice, to say the truth, to be honest, to have character, both personally and organizationally. But you also need to understand who you're talking with because every time you ask for a change in the system or, or for a, uh, you ask for, for a change in a system that apparently work, works for others. And so there will be losses, there will be losers. And, and you have to be very uh, aware of that. Who, are, who will be the losers of the change that you are trying to push? And how do you make, how can you sweeten that pill? And how can you actually compromise so that they will let you change the system? That's why I decided to join a mayor-led organization and this type of organization that works within the system rather than just working outside the system in an NGO, et cetera, because even if I really, really value that work and respect it with all my heart, that's probably not how I, I tend to operate. When I was at Wagner, I think I was one of these, the youngest students. And so they told me that <laughs> I could not graduate if I didn't do an internship or, or something like that because I needed more uh, professional experience, I guess. And so I really, I remember that I was in the books library uh, and I, I applied for this internship at the Clinton Foundation, which, which actually ended up being a, a cool experience because we had the um, opportunity to meet the former President Clinton for an hour and he was telling us like how I operated and, and lessons learned. And he was saying how for his personal leadership, it's very important to, it was very important to work with the Bush or to work with Walmart and all of these big players just because that's the way that he operates. It's not the way that everyone needs to operate, but that resonated with me. Sometimes you need to speak the language of the person or institution you're trying to change. And if you're a, a, a young woman leader, you really need to, to, to pay attention because, and this happened personally, like you, you have the, the opportunity to be there on stage and more, most of the times you're the only one there. There are like four other speakers there and they're, you know, 
talking and talking and, and just like perpetuating the systems and and then your turn comes and you can decide whether you're just gonna mimic them so then they're not you know you're not gonna be perceived as a disruptor or you're just gonna say the truth and 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 it's very it's a very important there have been moments where I was there and was like okay I'm just gonna you know, I'm just gonna speak the truth because and and then I did it and I and I was so glad that I did it but you also have to do it in a way that then they invite you back in and they and maybe they invite other women back in and they actually feel ashamed a, a bit uh, and, and, and they act on it. I love hearing that we should just stand our ground, be honest about the work that we're doing, be confident about it and not be afraid to be disruptors. Um, I think that's great advice. Uh, you've taught, talked a lot about the complexities and the challenges with working with these different city governments. And you all also talked about the importance of collaboration between city uh, cities across the world and also within each city uh, using the resources and capacities around them. So looking forward, what would you say, and I'll address this to both of you, what would y'all say is your hope for the future of migration? Um, I know that's a, it's a difficult question because there's going to be a lot of climate-induced challenges, conflict and po politically-induced challenges. So what would you say your hope for the future is with the way cities and mayors build resiliency for migration? I hope there will, there will not be a, um, the need for our organization. I hope that in a few years' times, we will not exist anymore because it will be totally normal for states and multilaterals to involve mayors because it's not just because it's the fair thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to do. And I hope that because of that, more resources will flow to cities and to on the ground work. And therefore more migrants, refugees will, will have an, a better and enhanced experience uh, wherever they, they end up moving. Yeah, I really liked your answer, Tori, about uh, female leadership. And just speaking to all the guys out there, um, well, Tori's talking about female leadership and, and the need to elevate your voice. Uh, for, for male leadership, it's um, knowing when to not elevate your voice. It's the complete opposite. So I just wanted to highlight that. <laughs> Sometimes it's good to just let people like Tori speak um, and, and just step aside. And I'm always happy to do that. Um, what I hope, I mean, I think it's important to know that as we were on this podcast, the Biden administration actually said that um, they're rolling back the a previous pledge to raise refugee admittance within the United States and actually keep the cap to what it was uh, under President Trump. And to Tori's point about the Mayor's Migration Council not being needed in the future, unfortunately, we're far from that. Um, because if cities had a say in what the US, is, the US resettlement policy would be, that decision would not have been made. Um, because they sort of, again, see the value that migrants and refugees bring to their cities. And so what do I hope? What I hope is that we stop framing migration as a challenge, that we stop framing the displacement as a challenge. Human mobility has been a part of human nature since the beginning of time. And now the only difference is there's more people, so more people are moving. Um, and so, you know, we really have to stop thinking about migration as a challenge, stop thinking about displacement as a challenge, and really start thinking about uh, how can we talk more about the best way to welcome migrants, the best way to welcome refugees, um, because they bring so much to our communities and, and so much resilience, so much diversity, so much know-how, um, because they did this very resilient thing, which is deciding to move from their homes, uh, which nobody makes, is, is a decision that nobody makes lightly. 
And so how do you best leverage that um, in a way that that creates a more equitable, more just society for everyone? Because this is the way that our society is moving. So we either make room for it and lean into it, or we're constantly stuck trying to catch up. Um, and that is not a future that I would uh, want to be a part of. So as we come to a close here, uh, since both of you all are ex-wag nerds, or I guess you're always a wag nerd once a wag nerd, how do you think uh, moving forward, Louisa and I are both in our last year, but there are a lot of students starting their Wagner journey now. So what advice do you have for current students and recent graduates both? So uh, I have two advices. Uh, the first one is uh, be you and don't get anxious uh, from others. Because I remember at some point there were all of these career fairs and these like workshops and people coming to you and say, have you submitted 1,300 applications yet? Or have you thought about your future like from now into the next 10 years? And I remember that was very anxiety driven and, and didn't necessarily work for me. So just know that if you feel that, you're not alone and you can come to talk to me and I can explain you how some of that anxiety is just not necessary at all. So that's one. Um, and then second uh, is really make the most of your capstone experience because for me personally, it was what led me to where I am today. Um, I, I, I worked for an organization um, that focused on climate and it was uh, an organization of Sir Richard Branson from, from Virgin. And I worked with them, we traveled to Brazil, we did an amazing project. And at the end of that, after the presentation, uh, without telling me, my client sent my CV to the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, who was just looking for interns. And so they, you know, they just called me and they, they were in a rush and I started an internship there. And I ended up being with that organization for six years from the inception to the end. Um, and that really changed my mind. Um, I, I became the executive director of this organization right after uh, that experience. So you never know where, where this, this will lead you. Sorry, I have a third one is, um, yeah, quality over quantity. Uh, Samir and I, like we've been working together for all of these years in all of these organizations. And we were both, um, we were both uh, Wagner's uh, roughly at the same time. Uh, I wish I spent more time with him at, at that time. So if you are in the public policy program, don't be shy and go meet people in that urban develop, urban program because you never know what could happen. Yeah, that actually, that's a perfect segue to my piece of advice, which I tell students, which is, um, you know, speak more than one professional language. I think that's really important. When I got into Wagner, I was a city planner. When I left, I was a humanitarian, precisely because of the people I met. Uh, the students that I met, let me say specifically, while I was at Wagner. Um, the way that the world works now, you really need to, you know, be in a room with mayors and be able to speak their language, be in the room with UN officials and speak their language, be in the room with community leaders and speak their language. Um, and I don't mean language in terms of like English or French or Farsi or, or whatever it is. I mean, like, really, you know, what, like, what are the words you're actually using? Is it, is it zoning or is it needs assessment or is it rapid uh, analysis or is it a gap analysis all of these don't really translate and so like think about really like the words that you're using and and the professional language that you're using and the more professional languages that you can learn the more opportunities will open up for you uh again like i started as a city planner moved to the humanitarian space and now 
I don't even know what this is called, Tori, but you know, in the diplomatic city advisory space that we're in currently. And the only reason that I could do that, at least personally, was because uh, of, of jumping from sort of lily pad to lily pad and picking up new skills and new languages along the way. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming here. I'm honestly fascinated about the Mayor's Migration Council work. It's so interesting. I think it's a very unique organization. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us. Thank you.